Are you the type to obsess over what went wrong in a tournament to improve on your mistakes? Ever wish you could ask a world-class jiu-jitsu coach or champion competitor for technical advice on pulling off their moves? Enter Technique, an online platform for transforming your game through personalized, professional advice. Choose from our roster of high-level competitors and instructors, upload your competition or training footage, and get your video back with precise commentary on your game. With Technique, you are guaranteed to receive valuable customized feedback to level up your jiu-jitsu game today. Access the next level of your training at technique.io. That's T-E-K-N-E-E-K dot I-O. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 77. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And that's what I would normally say if I were on my podcast, but I'm not. I'm on Tracy's podcast. What's up, Tracy? Hey, Steve. <laughs> I'm going to pretend I didn't just see you 30 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> Second attempt. First attempt got a little bit botched, but that's okay. Fun fact, I'm actually in Canada right now. What? No, I'm not. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought the border was closed. You actually have quite a contingent of fans for BJJ Mental Models at my school. We listen to your podcast pretty regularly. In class, we'll often look at each other and use the terms to remember concepts. Oh, awesome. That actually means a lot. Thank you very much. It's great to hear that the, the gospel is spreading. I always love hearing that people use our concepts and that it actually makes a difference for them. We also use our inside jokes sometimes, but that's a different matter. And then our professor walks by and glares at us. <laughs> well, that's that's half of being like a good instructor, right? Is just glaring at your students all the time. We actually have a guy that I train with. I won't name his name, but he's a black belt. He reminds me of Grumpy Cat because he'll just sit there on the edge of, uh, edge of the mats, just glaring at people all class. And I can't figure out like, is he is he mad? What is, what is his deal? Yeah, that's that's something that you have to master if you want to be black belt. Is the the glare? I also heard that once you become a black belt, all your classes become lectures. Is that true? Basically, basically, like that. You know, that's why they call it professor. You basically go into just giving like these big speeches and you don't really train anymore or anything. You just talk at people. <laughs> so basically we could listen to your podcast and not go to class and we get basically. just as smart. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it would be exactly the same. No difference whatsoever. I'm going to send a note to my professor later today that I, I'm quitting <laughs> jujitsu and I'm becoming a, a BJJ mental models listener. And you can I give would... me an online promotion. Oh man, I would love to hear more people play pranks like that on their instructors. It's like, we're going way beyond like online Gracie University learning stuff. We're basically quitting jujitsu so that we can learn it from a podcast. I mean, to be fair though, I found your podcast to be pretty educational. I think it's the way that you put things together and the way you present concepts. I also think that it's clear you're really passionate about jujitsu as well. Even though you describe yourself as a hobbyist, there's also like a certain level of thoughtfulness that goes into it. And I I think that helps listeners understand what you're trying to convey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I talk a lot about how I'm a hobbyist on the podcast. What I mean by that, of course, is that, you know, jujitsu is not my full-time job. It's something I do extracurricularly and for fun. Whereas my brother, Matt, the co-host, that is his full-time job. He's a pro gym owner, pro competitor. So that is the, the focus of his life. But he and I spend a lot of time working together on packaging up these concepts, both discussing them on the show and putting them on the website. I do agree with you that 
you can actually learn a deceptive amount from listening to a podcast. You wouldn't expect that when you're talking about something like jujitsu. The main difference I found is many instructors, they rely on the crutch of just showing you things. They'll say, oh, just do this. Steps one, two, three. And they rely on the fact that you can just watch them do it. And one of the cool things about podcasting is you cannot do that. There's no visual element. You have to use your words to describe things. Obviously, I can't just use my words to describe every step to a technique and expect someone to understand it. It just won't translate. So that forces you to really back up and rethink what is the optimal way to communicate this information? Like if you strip out all of the visual aids that we rely on as crutches, how can I use just words to share an idea? So that's a big part of what we do on the podcast is we try to rip away all of the distractions and just talk about the ideas and the concepts behind jujitsu. I wonder if it's more helpful to a beginner to have kind of that one plus one equals two approach. And then as you become more intermediate, you can rely more on mental models. I wonder if anyone's ever brought up that distinction. Definitely. We actually get this a lot. There's kind of an ongoing war these days, it seems, between people who are, they will call themselves technique focused, meaning they want to know like what is step one, step two, step three, and people who consider themselves concept focused. But I think honestly, your best results will come if you mix the two. Because on one hand, you're simply not going to learn jujitsu unless at some point you actually roll up your sleeves and do it. The example I give on a podcast is, you know, if I want to teach my two-year-old how to speak, I don't sit down and give her a five-hour lecture on grammatical structure. No, I, I give her very simple words and we repeat them hundreds of times and then slightly more complex words. And then at some point, years later, we can start talking about the concepts. But similarly, on the other hand, if you never bother to understand concepts, then your growth is always going to be stunted. Our recommendation is always to do a bit of both. You want to have those conversations about the big ideas and why you do things a certain way. But at the end of the day, at some point, you got to actually talk about where to put your hands and where to put your feet, right? And if your instructor's not doing that, you'll never really learn jujitsu. So I think you need a bit of both. You need both the high level stuff and also the on the ground stuff. It seems like also one of your values in jujitsu is about balance and about figuring out what is the right amount of everything to add. What are some of your other values? Hmm. Hmm. Good question. Well, we try to document a lot of these on the website. I mean, anything that is enough of a value that we would want to say it like encapsulates pretty much all that we do, we'd probably have that described as a mental model right on our website. I guess when you say values, what do you mean specifically? Do you mean ways to grapple or do you mean just at a, a higher level, like best practices for strategy? And I think it's higher level, best strategies for strategic thinking. I see. So at the end of the day, I think it's important to think about your values and why you do the things that you do and use those values to inform your decision. And it's actually really hard to back the truck up and think about this. I mean, I, I read a book by Ray Dalio called Principles recently. He is talking about this practice of actually thinking about and writing out what your principles are. I gave that a shot and it was a shockingly hard job. You think it would be easy, but it's actually really, really challenging to do. That's what we've tried to do on the website is basically document some of the values and principles that we believe apply across the board, some of which apply to sort of the mechanical aspects of jujitsu, some of which are maybe best practices for learning, some of which are maybe best practices for making decisions. And we break all of these out on our website into different categories. If you were to ask 
ask me what I think some of the most valuable are. I mean, in terms of actual on the ground jujitsu, you know, you're grappling. Probably the best concept framework I have heard for describing jujitsu is the alignment framework that Rob Bernacki from Island Top Team has popularized. And if you're a listener to the podcast, then you'll know that we've talked about this quite a bit. But basically, he claims that the jujitsu in its entirety can be broken up into really three things, maintaining posture, maintaining structure and maintaining base. And if you really understand what that means, you can use that to categorize and organize every other little detail that would come up. In terms of the mechanics of jujitsu, I think that's super important in terms of more how to learn, how to how to make decisions. I'm a big believer in in terms of learning, just focusing not on big wins necessarily in the moment, but on a process of continuous improvement. In in Japanese, they call that Kaizen. So the idea that, look, it doesn't matter so much if you won today or you lost today. What matters is that you're on a journey of continuous improvement and everything, whether it be a win or a loss, is an opportunity to learn. A mistake that a lot of people make, for example, is when they win, they just get excited and they don't really think about it and they don't bother to post-mortem and think about, well, yeah, I won, but did I win well or did I just win by luck? And similarly, if people lose, sometimes they get really down on themselves and they don't realize that loss is actually a great learning opportunity. The most important thing, whether you win or lose, is to stay on that treadmill of looking at every opportunity as an improvement. And again, in uh, management structures, and in just general philosophy, you'll hear that referred to as Kaizen, which is the Japanese word meaning continuous improvement. So an interesting thing about Kaizen is it, it seems like you need to have a very analytical approach to what you're improving and what you are still working on. And I was wondering for people who are not necessarily as confident in their jujitsu, could they fall into a trap of just thinking that they're not good enough? Oh boy, I mean, I think everyone does. Um, even the best in the world often, I think, have these doubts. I mean, we've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of the A-listers in the jiu-jitsu community on our podcast, and they'll say the same thing. They talk about their doubts and their lack of confidence all the time. It is a universal problem as far as I can tell. I think everyone thinks that they're bad at jiu-jitsu. I think that's kind of just part of it. And I think that to get a really good at jujitsu, you have to sort of paradoxically accept that you're bad at it, <laughs> right? If you want to get good at something, just being in denial about it or going into avoidance mode uh, because you're bad at it, that's not going to help. But I think that what everyone needs to do is just accept that, look, I don't know everything. I'm, I'm bad at this to some extent. No matter how experienced you are, there's always more that you can learn. And accepting that you are not perfect is a big part of identifying where you can then improve. I mean, what I would never want is a situation where one day I can't find anything wrong with what I do. That's a bad thing because it means that you're closed minded. No one is ever truly perfect. Nobody knows everything. If you ever get to the point where one day you think, I just can't think of anything I'm bad at. I mean, that, that's bad because it's not true. It just means that you no longer have the ability to identify where you need to focus your attention. It seems like you're being very specific about what you need to work on. You're not just saying every single day, I'm bad because I get submitted and that's the end of the matter. Well, one of the best things to happen to you in jiu-jitsu is to get submitted. If you're winning all the time on the mats, it's easy to get what, you know, my brother often talks about on the podcast as false positives, where basically you think you're really good because you're winning in the gym, 
when honestly winning in the gym is not should not really be your objective. Your objective should be to learn. So if you're in there with a bunch of other people who are trying to learn and your objective is to just go in there and smash them, you know, probably what you're going to find is a lot of those guys are eventually going to outpace you and get better. When you lose or you get tapped out, that's actually one of the best things that can happen to you in jujitsu because it gives you direct feedback as to what you need to work on. You know, I wish I could get that kind of direct feedback elsewhere in the world, right? I wish that on the job, when I did something wrong, someone would tell me right away so I can never make that mistake again. But that often doesn't happen, right? If I'm being a jerk at work, I can't assume that people are going to actually be comfortable enough to come up and tell me to my face. So I may never improve. But in jujitsu, if you make a mistake, you will pay for it and you will pay for it quickly. So it's easy to identify areas that you need to improve. I try to come to a practice of gratitude when it comes to getting submitted. I'm always trying to be thankful to people who tap me and I always congratulate them afterwards and compliment them on what they did well because they've given me something. They've identified an area of weakness that I now need to work on. And that's a lot more valuable to me than if I just go in and I steamroll a bunch of white belts, right? I don't get anything out of that. I think also the flip side for in terms of concepts would be raising the level in the room. That's another mental model that you have in the database. And what I was wondering specifically specifically is how to apply that. I've had scenarios where depending on the culture of the gym, you would never help out a higher rank or if you did so, you had to do it in a very tactful way. And then also the flip side is when beginners come in, you don't want to overwhelm them with all of this advice. So how do you think someone can go about raising the level in the room, particularly if they're not a black belt? Sure, sure, sure. So for context, when we talk about this, what we're talking about is basically taking the the talent and skill level of the people in your gym and bringing them all up. There's a term that you'll often hear in the martial arts. People will say iron sharpens iron. That's kind of what we're talking about to some extent. The idea being that hey, if I can make my training partners better, it will make me better. The mistake that a lot of people make is they walk into the gym and they try to win. That's not the objective of your time in the gym. Your objective is to improve. When you want to win is when you're competing. In the gym, your focus should be not on like racking up taps, but on rather on getting better. One of the best ways to do that is to have better quality opposition. The best way to get that is to help train them. So when we talk about raising the level in the room, generally this is the responsibility for the more senior people. But you know, most people, unless you're a day one white belt, everyone in the gym is going to be more senior to someone else. I mean, if you're a, a white belt, right, there will be situations actually where you might be able to help a black belt, but it, it's not as likely that you're going to be able to give them guidance. But if if you're even, you know, a one or a two stripe white belt, you have worlds more knowledge than the new guy. So part of what you can do rather than just trying to squish them is to point out what they did wrong. A good trick that I like to do is if I am consistently beating you with something, I'll just teach you how to stop it. So if I'm sparring with you, Tracy, and I triangle you, and then I triangle you again, and then I triangle you again within like three minutes, rather than triangling you 10 more times and demoralizing you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to halt the training and I'm going to say, here's exactly what I'm doing so that you know. And then I'm going to say, here's exactly how you stop me from doing this. And we'll keep working on that until you're not able to triangle me anymore. Because at some point, if we do that, then even if you're a white or a blue belt, you'll get black belt level defense of the triangle choke if you can block my triangle. Although you might not be perfect in every area, 
you've shored up one area. And the thing to bear in mind too about jujitsu is that most people are not good at everything. You, you just simply cannot be good at everything. Most people are good at a few things and then they're good at taking the match to those situations. You won't see anyone who is just completely perfect at everything, but usually people have strong positions or strong techniques and they like to funnel people into that. Myself, for example, I mean, I have one or two submissions that I'm really good at. If you can defend those, it's actually going to be pretty hard for me to tap you. I mean, if you take out my sharpest tools, then instead of fighting me at black belt level, you might be fighting me at like purple belt level. So by giving you the defenses to my best techniques, I can make you good enough that A, you're improving and B, you're shutting down my A game. So not only does that make you, the junior person, better because you learn, B, it makes me as the senior person better because it forces me to refine my techniques and to develop new ones because my A game no longer works. I can no longer rely on my best tools as a crutch. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think also what you're talking about is having good communication with your training partners. Because a lot of times I find that in gyms that are especially competitive, usually people don't really share strategies with each other. I'm not really sure why that's that makes sense. Because if you do want to do well in competition, you generally want people to be constantly talking to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is probably one of the things that has evolved most significantly in jujitsu in in the last few decades, I would say. Back in the early days, jujitsu was very tribal. You know, you would have these gyms and they were all, they would basically fight in the gym. Like they weren't really training. They were having like full out fights in the gym. And that was how they got better, which is not smart at all. And there would be a lot of emphasis on secret techniques and not collaborating with people outside of the gym. And all of that stuff is really stupid. And the good news is, although we still have some of that, it's getting a lot better. Most gyms now are open to collaboration and cross training and so much of the knowledge we get is put out there on YouTube and in instructionals. People are much more liberal in terms of how they share knowledge. And I think that's why the quality of jujitsu and the average skill level seems to have gone up so much in the last decade or so is because that sharing of information, it raises the level in, in the room. But in this case, the room is basically the whole community. And I hear what you're saying. I too have trained at gyms that are overly competitive. I think that's dumb. If you look at a lot of the best gyms in the world, yeah, they, they train hard, they spar hard, but they're a team and they share and they train like they're in a laboratory. I think that's the best mindset to have when you're doing jujitsu is to have like a collaboration collaborative, almost scientific approach with your teammates where you're trying out new things, you're iterating, you're communicating, you're not being overly confident in your own knowledge. That kind of lab culture is, I think, the best way to run a jiu-jitsu gym. Being in the gym, I mean, unless you're ramping up for like a bit for a big competition, being in the gym is not the time to be trying to go and win fights. There are no medals awarded in the gym. I think that's a really good point and something that I really noticed in terms of the difference between my training in 2019 and 2020, because I'm not competing in 2020. And in 2019, I was competing a lot. And I often found myself just getting so stressed out that I couldn't do a certain submission or do a certain pass that I wasn't even thinking about learning. I was just thinking about how do I fix this so I don't get murdered in a competition. Exactly, exactly. And actually something my brother has been talking about in the last year is training to lose, he calls it, where basically he's intentionally trying to put himself in positions where he's going to have to fight to get out of or positions that he's weak in with the intent of getting better at those positions. 
rather than just trying to play your A game all the time and just smash all of your students. This is something that I have started doing as well. I mean, I think most of the people on the podcast know that I'm a strong advocate for the turtle position. And it's not that I think turtle is this killer position that everyone should get good at. But for me, the reason I got into it was because I realized at one point that when people were tapping me out, it was almost always because they were able to get to my back. I could defend quite well from almost anywhere, but if someone was able to get to my back, they were probably going to get me. So I decided I needed to work on that. And what's the quickest way to encourage people to get on your back is you pull turtle. So between that, within a period of about a month or two, I became really good at playing from turtle, not even just defensively, but even going on offense from there. And also my back defense got way better as well. That never would have happened if I just wrote off those positions and decided to focus on the stuff that I was good at. I think a big part of improving is identifying your weaknesses and specifically targeting in your training so that you have to deal with those situations. Okay, I have a petty concern, (laughs) (laughs) which is what if I like to look good in front of my instructor and in the course of trying to look good, I just stick to the things I know so I do well versus trying something that is going to end horribly for me. Do you think that makes an unfair assumption about the instructor? Uh, I, I don't even think it really has anything to do with the instructor. This appears to be an almost universal problem. In fact, I definitely have also had the same problem where I'm afraid to look bad in front of my coach. Even today, you know, like 13 years into this stupid sport, I still get caught in that sometimes where I realize like I'm training differently when my instructor watches. Uh, It's just, it's a stupid ego thing that we all have to get past. I do know exactly what you mean though, because I know that, you know, if my instructor is somewhere else in the gym and he's not looking at me, I'll train one way. But as soon as he walks by and he's watching me, it's like, live or die time, right? And that's a a mindset that we all have to grow out of because first of all, a lot of instructors, they know that's happening and it's actually not a good look for you (laughs) if if you're trying to kill other students just because the instructor's watching. Like they know, they're going to want you to to slow down and focus on technique. It is a natural fear though of looking bad in front of the instructor because at the back of your mind, you're always thinking, shit, maybe he's not going to promote me because he saw me get tapped out by this guy or something. So there's a natural fear, but the reality is you're not going to learn And actually, I would say you're probably likely to make more mistakes when you put that kind of pressure on yourself. And moreover, your instructor is not there to to grade you. Your instructor is there to help you learn. So the best thing you can actually do is train normally in front of your instructor so that they will see your weaknesses and help you. Right? It's a good thing if your instructor stops by and and starts giving you pointers. That's much better than if they provide you no value at all. Right? I mean, jujitsu in most places is an expensive martial art to learn. If if you're paying that much money, you should want to get as much value out of your instructor as you can. That is a really good point. I never, I actually never thought of it that way. I think being raised to always value appearances and reputation in specific contexts, particularly where there is a clear hierarchy involved, mm-hmm. is something that I default to. At the end of the day, I have to remember that jujitsu is my hobby. And while I do have certain goals in mind, I ultimately see it as an avenue for growth. Yeah, I think that's actually the, the strongest benefit to jujitsu. I mean, most people get into jujitsu because they want to learn self-defense or something to that impact. And then at some point, once they discover the competition scene, people might get really passionate about that. But at the end of the day, over the long term, I think the biggest benefit to jujitsu is using it as a vehicle for personal growth. The jujitsu itself is great, but I mean, if we're going to be honest, you're probably never going to need to defend yourself in a street fight with jujitsu, right? And even if you got into that situation, probably not the wisest thing to do because you never know if the person has like a knife or something, right? So that kind of like 
like self-defense fantasy is actually probably the least likely benefit you're going to get out of jujitsu. What you will get out of jujitsu is physical fitness. You'll get confidence. You'll get discipline. And another thing that people don't talk about a lot is you'll learn how to learn. Jujitsu is a great way to get feedback, right? It's kind of like a little science experiment every time you roll. You try new things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't and you learn from it and it's a very quick feedback loop. You can learn a lot of decision-making strategies on the mats that you could actually at some point will realize, you know, this actually is the same strategies that I might want to use on the job. I mean, not choking someone necessarily, but in terms of how to make decisions under pressure, a lot of the strategies actually are not that different. I'm reminded of my friend who is a software engineer and she was talking about how it's normal and good to find bugs in the software that she's developing and yet it seems like failure is not really normalized in jujitsu, or at least not yet. Yes, yes. Actually, this is something I can also collaborate on here because my background is software. I can agree. I have worked at companies where if a bug is found, it's time to figure out who did it and punish. And that's a terrible, terrible strategy for a company to have because all that means is you're not going to find bugs. Who's going to want to find a bug and report the bug if it means that you're, you know, it's going to impact your career? People are simply not going to own up to their mistakes. So what you wind up with, paradox is very buggy software. The more you demand bug-free code, that's not going to magically make bugs disappear. It's just going to get people to sweep them under the rug and not tell you. What you need to do is accept that mistakes happen. That's a, a fundamental principle in software development and, and really in any sort of process-driven structure. Rather than trying to prevent mistakes from ever happening, I mean, of course you want to prevent them, but you also have to understand that they will and bake that into your process. And that's where things like Kaizen come up, where you can use this practice of continuous improvement as a learning vehicle. So if you win, you use that as a learning opportunity. You still, even if you win, rather than going off and just having a party and forgetting about it, you analyze what you got wrong because you probably still got things wrong or you might have won by just dumb luck or a mistake the other guy made. But similarly, if you lose, rather than being down on yourself, use that as a learning opportunity and you try to assess what you did wrong and how you can improve next time. The worst thing that you want to do is beat yourself up over it. From a gym culture standpoint, the worst thing that a gym can do is beat up their competitors for losing. That's just an absolutely terrible idea. It sends the wrong message and it builds the wrong kind of culture. One thing that is related to that idea is software is mostly impersonal. You're not going to hurt the software's feelings if you find a bug. And I think when it comes to people, it, obviously it gets a lot more complicated. There's a risk of either introducing anxiety, depression, shame into the equation. Is the path forward a mixture of that impersonal, analytical plus emotion? Or do you just go with straight objective? This is how it is. My guard sucks and it gets passed. <laughs> I mean, in an, in an ideal world, I would love to say that we just use the fully objective approach and we're all just a bunch of calculators, but you know that's not true, right? I know that's not true. We're human beings are complicated critters and there's a lot of factors that can play into something beyond just how you performed on an individual role. It's not always as simple as just input in, output out. Sometimes it's a bit more complicated because yeah, people do have emotions and feelings and I mean, we don't just live on the mats. We all have lives outside of the mats. We can bring in problems from outside that could impact our performance and we need to accept that that 
that happens and it's fine. There have been days where I come into the gym and I feel awesome. And I just know like, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm going to dominate today. I'm, it's going to be a great day on the mats. And when I come in feeling that way, that's what happens. But there's also days where I come in and I'm just, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm going in because I know that the worst thing for me to do when I have that mindset is to stay home. You know, I want to go in, I want to be consistent, but some days I go in and I'm just, I come in and I'm depressed or, you know, my mind is somewhere else because something bad has happened in my personal life. And that impacts your ability to train. But the important thing to remember is we're all human beings, right? You, you can't beat yourself up for that. It's you, we just have to come to a terms and accept that and just be like, look, it's a bad day. That's fine. But you know, we get back on the horse. We have this routine. We go to jujitsu. We train, we get our exercise. We know that's good for us. We know that some days the bad days are the ones that you learn the most from. So it's less about trying to avoid being bad or feeling bad and more about just accepting that sometimes that happens and getting back on the horse anyway. Yeah, I think I'm really good at putting a lot of pressure on myself. I actually think that the mental model of self-competition is really hilarious. Mm -hmm. uh, the other day, I asked my husband, why do I always think I'm in second or third place? <laughs> I don't think I quite got it right, though. <laughs> well, hey, second and third place aren't that bad because at least it means that you have a clear path to growth. If you're in first place, I mean, it feels good in the short term, but the problem there is that it isn't always as easy or obvious for you to improve. Might even demoralize you or disincentivize you from doing it. But yeah, it's it's so easy to compare yourself to the other people on the mats, and that is such a dangerous practice in jiu-jitsu, but in, also in life in general. I mean, myself, I remember when I got to brown belt and I got started getting some stripes and I knew I was getting to black belt, I really lost my passion for jiu-jitsu. I just, you know, after doing it for all that long, I was like just days away from getting black belt and I kind of just completely burned out and didn't care anymore. And I, I took a significant amount of time off, actually. A big part of the reason why, uh, you know, after some reflection, I realized it was just because I had put so much pressure on myself. You know, I felt that I was supposed to be this type of grappler and I was supposed to be at level X and I didn't feel I was at level X and I felt like every time I was going onto the mats I was making myself look bad and making my instructor look bad because I just wasn't able to do it right. It wasn't until I came to accept that mindset that I was able to really turn it around. And at one point, I just kind of realized, you know what, F it. I'm not good at this. I'm not great at this. There are things I could improve at. I don't care if I wind up looking stupid. I'm just going to show up and have fun. And as soon as I had that mental shift, I immediately got like better almost overnight. Like I, I'd really kind of petered out, I feel like when I was at Brown Belt. But then as soon as I had that mental shift where I thought, you know what, I'm just going to be grateful for time on the mats and I'm going to have fun and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to learn. And I'm not going to allow myself to feel proud pressured to be the best on the mats. Two things happened. One was I started immediately enjoying jujitsu a lot more. And the other thing is I actually got a lot better because I had reopened my mind, which is something that anyone with seniority runs the risk of, right? If you've been doing something for a long time, you develop the risk of closing your mind to new ideas and getting your ego wrapped into things. That was my personal experience on the matter about, you know, looking good, looking bad on the mats. I am so glad that you did not quit, first of all. And second of all, I'm really glad that you mentioned that this happened around brown belt because actually I because of the pandemic there's several people who've had a serious reckoning with regards to how much they want to train and they're fairly advanced mm -hmm. and I keep just telling them don't quit <laughs> yeah. please don't quit because I feel like they have so much more potential if they could only accept that things are not easy for them right now 
Yeah, there there are different valleys, I guess, in the jujitsu journey. You know, I think everyone knows about the blue belt blues. You're so excited to get your blue belt because when you're a white belt, it seems like this big deal. But then you get the blue belt and you look ahead and you see this like yawning universe in front of you and how much further you have to go. And now instead of having this like one year goal or whatever, you've got like a 10 year goal and you realize that, man, everyone up here now, these purple belts and these brown belts and these black belts who weren't really paying attention to me now, now I got to deal with them and they're kicking my ass. And, you know, also when you get to blue belt, a lot of your buddies drop off. And so it can be a very lonely experience. A lot of people leave blue belt for that reason. But I think there was also a, a similar reckoning at brown belt where you have kind of a crisis of confidence and you have to learn to accept that, no, you're not expected to know everything. And I think maybe a lot of brown belts feel like that. You know, man, if you're a black belt, it means you never lose in the gym and you know everything and you can answer any question off the top of your head. In my mind, one of the most important things to have at black belt is an acceptance that I don't know everything and it's okay. And I'm not good at everything and it's okay. And I'm going to get beat up sometimes by white and blue belts and that's okay as well. I appreciate that. I think a lot of people appreciate what you just said. <laughs> well, I, I hope so. I mean, I know that jujitsu is such a long journey, right? It's not a martial art where you get your black belt in two or three years. It requires a serious time commitment to get a black belt in jujitsu, regardless of whether you're a hobbyist or a competitor. Over that window, it's common to have a lot of crises of confidence. And it's just important to know that all of these things they probably happen to everybody else as well. You're not the first person, so it's it's not just you if you have these doubts. It helps that also the way you talk about your jujitsu, I can tell that you really own your identity. I think when sometimes people talk about their experience in jujitsu, they're not quite sure how they're supposed to label or identify with it, mainly because social media, I think, mm -hmm. is such a noisy forum. So that's something that I think I noticed and that's really helpful that you're actually modeling for us a way of owning what your experience is like. Well, it's important to ask yourself, you know, what does jujitsu actually mean to you? Odds are your coach and your team are going to try to steer you in the same direction that they went because that's what they wanted to do and it worked for them. So it takes a bit of courage to actually critically analyze what do I want to get out of this martial art and to focus on that. I mean, common example is a lot of people do jujitsu as a hobby, but there is relentless pressure to push hobbyists into competition that they probably don't want to do. And I mean, yes, they will argue that, oh, well, competition is how you test yourself and build character. Well, buddy, there's a lot of ways to build character. Jiu-Jitsu is not the only way. You don't know anything about these people. They're building character by being a single mother of two. Or maybe they're building character because they have a really hard, important job. Or maybe they're building character by volunteering at the YMCA. Jiu-Jitsu is not the only way to do it. A mistake I often see people make in Jiu-Jitsu is they prescribe to their students exactly what worked for them and they kind of expect them to do the same thing. So I think it's important for everyone to sit down and think about, okay, why do I train this and what do I want out of this? And how is that going to inform how I train, what kind of style I play, what kind of training partners and, and rule sets I train under. Like all of that stuff matters. That's not a decision that you should just cede to your instructor. It's something that you should actively think about over the long term. You maximize the value of your training. Yeah. And time is a really precious resource. That's something that I've learned from your podcast and also just from life experience in my former life as an attorney. I basically never had time to myself. Mm -hmm. And I kind of look back at, on those years as 
lost years because I just decided I needed to become an attorney to get other people's approval. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can understand that. I mean, I, I work with a lot of lawyers and I know what the lawyer culture is like. There's almost a fetishization of putting in more hours, more hours, more hours. It's like a badge of pride if you burn yourself out. And some aspects of the software world have that as well. You know, I've heard it referred to as hustle porn, where basically you're, you're hustling for the sake of hustling. And I always say, and, and again, these are mental models that we talk about on the website. I always say that, look, if you want to impress me, don't achieve something by working 20 hours a day every day and burning yourself out. I want to see you achieve the same thing working nine to five so that you can go home with your family and still achieve those goals. More hours should not be the goal. The goal should be more results and time in versus value out. It's not always a straight correlation. Sometimes big efficiency gains can actually save you a lot of time. And so with less time on the mat, you can actually wind up achieving more. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if it is their job to be a jujitsu pro, it's going to be hard to overcome that much time and effort in any field. I think there's significant diminishing returns to burning yourself out. I think that you're far better balancing the time that you spend and making sure that you don't over invest in something. It's all about return on investment, a, a mental model we talk about quite a bit on the podcast. It's all great to get results, but what did you have to give up to get those results? And was it worth it? Is something we always need to be asking ourselves. I can tell you December of last year, it was not worth it. I got ringworm because my body just gave out on me. Oh man. <laughs> And then right when I came back, the gym started closing. Jeez, awful, awful timing. Well, I think the interesting thing about this pandemic is that I think it's going to encourage a lot of us to reevaluate what really mean, you know, is important in life. I know it certainly has for me. A lot of things that I took for granted before, I have a newfound appreciation for. A lot of the, the methods that I used before, I now question things that I thought I had to do because that's just how things were done. I realize now, like, okay, maybe I don't need to actually do these things. Maybe there's a different way. I think that when we get into 2021, I think that a lot of people are going to reassess the way they used to do things. And I'm glad that you had kind of one of those moments where you realized that you weren't on the path that you thought would ultimately lead to happiness. Okay, fill in the blank. Jujitsu is an effective vehicle for personal growth. Number two, the last book you read. Oh, what was it called? One second. It's on my phone. Okay, hold on, hold on. The, the last book I'm the book I'm currently reading or the last one I finished? Uh, let's go with both. Okay. The last book I finished was Apollo's Arrow by Nicholas Christakis. It's actually a really good book about the impacts of the coronavirus. It's actually amazing that he was able to write such a good book so quickly, given that the pandemic is still going on. But I heard him talk on Sam Harris's podcast and he gave, it's a really good reason book about the, the impact and the fallout of coronavirus and how that impacts our lives. Really, really liked it. The book I'm currently reading is Promise Me Dad by Joe Biden. I figured this guy's the president now. I should read his book to see what he's all about. I'd been wanting to read it for a while, but I'd been putting it off because it's a, it sounds like a total heartbreaker. Like for those people who don't know, and I think probably most people know right now, like this dude has been through some tragedies and basically the book is about the, the death of his son. And so I'd kind of been putting it off because I thought like, man, this is going to be a heavy, heavy read. Uh, I'm a few hours into it now. I, I like it so far. I mean, I think that generally speaking, whenever you've got a, a newly elected leader, it's always good if they've, if they have any writings out there to read those 
so that you understand what makes them tick. So, you know, regardless of your political affiliation, I think it's a good read if you want to understand what, what's likely next for America in the next four years. I really appreciate that. For all the listeners out there, Steve is Canadian. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm not, it's not even my president, right, is your president. But I just thought, well, you know, it's been such a weird four years. Um, when Trump was elected, I read his book and I'm doing the same for Joe Biden. And I think I might just make that. Actually, I think when Obama was elected, I read his too. And I just find that to be a, a good practice, right? If you want to really get inside the head of the person who's going to be leading your country, if they've got any writings out there, that's probably one of the, the best ways to do it. Got it. Number four, three things on your nightstand, not in your nightstand, on your nightstand. Oh God, on my light, my nightstand, a lamp, a, a journal that I honestly don't use as much as I should, and a tensor bandage, which I think is something that any jujitsu person can relate to. You just got like bandages and wraps and ice packs stashed away everywhere. Yeah, and was a that, gallon of Tylenol. Sorry, were you looking for four things or three things? Just three. There's just, also just three. there's also a coaster, but there's nothing on it. <laughs> cool. Thank you. <laughs> Number five. What's your biggest mindset gremlin? My biggest mindset gremlin. I have doubts about my presence as a leader. I sometimes worry that I'm not able to position myself to be taken seriously as a leader. I have doubts about this in, you know, in my career, in jujitsu. I always want to be pushing the envelope and trying to move things forward and trying to grow myself. But I always wonder, do the people around me see me as the kind of person who can do that and who can wear that hat? So that's a that's a personal mind gremlin that I have. I think probably everyone does, though. I'll just say that when I said told my friend I was interviewing Steve, she wrote back, oh, my God, in all caps. <laughs> You know, it is it is actually kind of funny. And it, this has actually taught me a lot about like about blindly following expertise, because I mean, the thing that I, I say this repeatedly on the podcast, like I am a hobbyist, you know, normally I would train like maybe three times a week. I haven't trained for basically a year due to the pandemic. But normally before that, I would train maybe two or three times a week, generally at pretty low intensity. I don't compete. And when I say I don't compete, I mean, I have literally never competed, not one time. <laughs> and all the same, though, because of the podcast and the growth, we've developed this following. And like I get these like world leading black belts coming to me, asking me questions. Like the other day, I got a, I got a message from this guy who was like having all of these doubts and wanted me wanted to bounce some ideas off of me and help me troubleshoot some stuff with him. And I thought, I just thought, dude, like, I believe you're currently the number one ranked person in the world right now in your particular field here in jiu-jitsu. And, and you're coming to me, a guy who has never competed, and you're asking me to help you understand something. Uh, so it it is interesting how it's given me a perspective on this whole, like, influencer culture. Sometimes people might have these veneer veneers of expertise, but at the end of the day, that often doesn't necessarily mean much, right? It's all just social proof and it might not be actually based on any specific merit or skill set. Okay, but we still like you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Two more questions. One word to describe cats. Uh, I mean, the first word that came to my head was meow, which I guess is accurate. I would say misunderstood because I was not a cat person until I think about the age of I'd say maybe 28 ish. I didn't, I didn't like cats. I always thought I was a dog person. I had grown up being told that cats are these fickle little creatures who will wreck your couch and they hate you and they don't want anything to do with you. But that is absolutely not true. That has not been my experience. I mean, yes, there are crazy cats out there who suck as pets. I mean, my brother has one cat that is just a total psycho, but my cats are like the most loving, affectionate things ever. I mean, one of my cats is basically a dog in terms of his behavior. It's a great example of how stereotypes can influence your thinking. And unfortunately, sometimes by the time you are able to correct that thinking, you may have lost decades of your life doing the wrong thing. And that makes me wonder if in this 
small stakes scenario if I had made this stereotype about cats that had turned me off of them for most of my adult life, what other stereotypes am I making that I have not realized yet? You know, what other things am I dismissing? What other people am I judging? What other decisions am I making that are wrong simply because I have not overcome that stereotype yet? And that kind of stuff terrifies me, should probably terrify all of us. I think we need a mental model for that. Yeah, I, you know, I think there is, I don't know how to describe it. I'm sure that there's a boatload of research that's been done on this. And I mean, heck, if you or any of your listeners can help us target this, I'd love to know. I'm sure there was a concept for this, but basically an understanding of, of stereotypes when they have uses, because of course, stereo, I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason. Our brains create these because they do have some value as a, as a short-term decision maker, but they can also do tremendous damage over the long term, and they're incredibly hard to overcome overcome. Not only is it just that you're making a bad decision, but often your entire identity and life story is wrapped up in these stereotypes. How you identify and overcome stereotypes is such an important thing. I, I would love to hear comments or feedback from anyone who listens to this. Got it. And last thing is, what are some bookmarks on your bookmark bar? My bookmark, you mean like on my computer? Yep. Um, I don't have it in front of me. Mostly, unfortunately, it's just work stuff. It's like links to my calendar, links to all of the various pages on Patreon. I, I generally bookmark for utility more than anything else. So it's like bookmarks to Google Sheets, stuff like that. I'll bring up my phone here because maybe maybe I've got something different here that I can I can outline here on my phone. Okay, so on my phone, of course, I've got my bookmark to Amazon. I've got my bookmark to Audible, various BJJ gym websites so that I can quickly check their schedules. All of the BJJ mental models crap that we need to run the podcast. Comixology. Uh, I've got bookmarks to some investor sites. I've got bookmarks to some clothing sites like Gustin and Taylor Stitch. Great if you need men's clothing. And that's basically the highlights. 